The month of Molinsky gets a grand finale. This week's guest is Tisa, who was Dave's fiance from their younger years back when they were young and wild and free. Tisa got to know Dave in the mid-1980s during their years at Penn State. Today, I think you're all about to find out that she's about as well-rounded as Dave famously was. <laughs> a little bit about Tisa's background. She's a skilled management consultant with over 30 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, also a lecturer at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches MBAs as well as executive MBAs and privately coaches Wharton finance and economics PhD candidates. If that's not enough, Tisa is also a real estate investor and amateur genealogist. And for the last 15 years, she's run her own boutique communications and training firm. Today, she is married to Michael and the mother of two adopted sons, Anna Benedictine Oblate. Together, they live a healthy distance outside of Philadelphia. And when not teaching, coaching, consulting, or waiting for the FDA to give her the green light so she can launch her product, Tisa is happily making meatloaf. Tisa, such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Props and Hops. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Super excited to talk about one of my favorite people, the one, the only, Dave Malinsky. So, Matthew, if you could indulge me for a moment. In the spirit of your 2017 season with Dave, you had Beer of the Week. I've yes. brought my contribution to today's show. So I'll be sipping from a very small batch of homebrew, private reserve. It's a Belgian IPA. Isn't that beautiful? My little... Oh, that looks great. And and oh, for those uh, listening, you'll see this on, on YouTube, but there's the Chimay glass as well. So this is proper glassware to go with a Belgian beer as well. Our beer is called Leper Water, but our Leper Water is delicious. So Professor Tisa has a short extra credit assignment for the students who need extra points to boost up their grades. Look up um, St. Bridget of Kildare, Ireland to find her connection to beer. So, mm. Matt, you and me, let's toast to Dave. All right, Tisa. Oh, I like the sound Cheers of that. Cheers to you. It's one of my favorite <laughs> sounds in the world. I've got to ask. I, I will briefly tee up my beer. You mentioned this is homebrew. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that process. How often do you have something <laughs> available at home? It's it's one of those things that I have thought about doing for a while, haven't gotten around to it yet, but it is so intriguing to me. So I'd love to hear more about that. So um, in the spirit of Malinsky, we're big beer fans here at our household. So we were homebrewing pre-children. And then since the children are at late teens, 20 now, there's been a 20 year hiatus because your house ends up smelling like a fraternity. And uh, the older son gave my husband a um, the ingredients to make one at Christmas time. So he's back now home brewing. So we're not, we're, I call it the tea bag method where you put all the materials in there and you steep it. Um, so that's, I, I'm not the chief of that. I'm the brewmaster assistant keeping everything clean, kosher, and moving forward and helping fix uh, fix and adjust recipes as we go along. Our uh, brewery is called Old City, as in Jerusalem. That's so amazing. I, I have a beer suggestion later, so we'll get to it. So I want to see if you've tried this kind of beer when we get there. Okay, okay. I will definitely make sure to keep a pin in that thought. 
And I will let you know, um, in the spirit of making this a two-way street, I don't think I've yes. got quite the beautiful introduction teed up for this beer, but I'm happy to be drinking a Cali Squeeze with Blood Orange. I'll hold up oh, the can here. I don't have the proper sure. glassware. This is great sure. from the can. Right. It's by Firestone Walker Brewing, based in Paso Robles in basically wine country in uh, southern central California. Uh, a really nice town, really good brewery. And this one is a wheat beer. It's 5% ABV, but oh. with the blood orange, it has a nice citrusy kick. And as a nod to Dave, anytime I would queue up a beer of the week when we did House of Yards in 2017, he would always want to play around with potential pairings. And I know that Dave, as much of a food connoisseur as he was, I, I think Thai food took the cake for him, or at least Lotus of Siam, a world-class Thai restaurant in Las Vegas, was at the top of the list for him. So yeah. thinking of Dave, uh, last night I had this beer paired with Pad Thai from a, a local spot, actually like a three-minute walk from my house. And there's oh, this beautiful. wonderful woman, Angela, who is a one-person operation. She cooks, she answers the phones and places to go orders. She waits tables. She she does it all. I don't know how, but she makes a lot of excellent Thai food. I would have loved to share some with Dave had we been given the opportunity. But mm -hmm. the Pad Thai with a little bit of sweetness and then the citrus that you get from this beer, from that blood orange, just such a nice pairing. So this is good on its own. It's good with some Pad Thai. And uh, yeah, once again, cheers to Dave. One more sip. <laughs> One more. <laughs> All right, so as uh, I enjoy this Cali Squeeze with Blood Orange and uh, think about what we're going to get to down the road along the lines of beer, I know a conversation about Dave probably going to take on, uh, of course, some beer talk in many different dimensions as well. Mm -hmm. So to further things along here, I think uh, is an opening. You mentioned you had something inspired by Stevie Ray Vaughan to get the ball rolling talking more about Dave, and I'd love to hear about that, Tisa. Right. So we'll talk about Stevie Ray Vaughan in a five minutes or so, but he was a musician we met at the, uh, we found at that time. He ends up dying in a helicopter crash in 1990. He's a Texas blues guitarist. He's amazing. Uh, his brother is Jimmy, Jimmy Vaughn of the Thunderbirds and other bands. I don't know if you know him. Anyway, so I was um, thinking about Dave and there's a line that Stevie has that says, a jewel one of those rarities who comes along once in a lifetime. And Dave is that jewel. So I'd like to thank you right up front for permitting me time, um, little old me, to talk about and share some stories about Dave. For those of you who know Dave, these stories will resonate. For those who did not know Dave, but maybe you know from business or personal, you'll hear stories from different points of view. These stories go back before his eldest nephew was even born. That's Tanner. And uh, so these go back a little while. So why don't we compare notes? I'll drop a little knowledge nugget and say, no, that, that's not the Dave I know. Or maybe, yes, you'll let me know. And we can, uh, we'll go from there. But I'm going to do a little, three little knowledge nuggets, if that's okay with you, Matt. The first is a Dave primer or primer, however you like to say mm -hmm. that, a Dave Malinsky 101. And then we'll segue to a short little study of how I met Dave. And then I'll segue to the last part, which is unpacking something that most people do not know about Dave. And it, hopefully you'll uh, be in admiration and perhaps maybe it'll inspire you. So that sounds excellent. Yeah. Another sip of that um, lovely little can of something, something you had there while we look <laughs> back at mid 
age wise, he was mid twenties, early to mid twenties. And already Dave at that age was an exceptional soul. So Mr. Matt did the Dave 101 primer. I have five topics for you. So you can pick which one you would like to start with. And they Jeopardy are action. beer, bites, books, Bruce, and the betting business. Which one of the categories would you like me to tackle first? All right. I must say, first off, the, the level of preparation that you have clearly put into this, I appreciate so greatly. I take it as one of the highest compliments when I have guests on the show and they'll thank me for the prep that I put in. Yes. But you're making my job easy here. And I think uh, I am far from the only one who will be mesmerized by this conversation. That much is clear right out of the gate. And you know what? If we open this up with a beer yeah. of the week, then then let's go with beer to kick off the, the Dave primer as well, please. <laughs> I love you too, Matt. That's great. <laughs> We're kindred spirits. Okay, so I meet Dave, and this is the early 80s. And I want to let you know, in our world, Rolling Rock and Iron City beer, which are local to Pennsylvania, are the king. So these are decades before craft brews. So these are air times for thirsty souls. Um, so we do the best we can. So Dave has a, an approach, a philosophy, which shows up in this thing where you like, where you were doing the beers, right? To 2017. And you're talking about little gems, little jewels that you discover and you're sharing them with among yourselves and your colleagues. So Dave believed in passing it forward, paying it forward. So once we found something other than let's say Miller Lite, uh, in State College, we would tell others about it. But when you go to the bars, there's a billion bars in State College, but they're sell selling most of that. So he would pedal, uh, pedal the new winners that he would find to the Stroh's beer refugees that he would find along the way, also known as his friends. So that behavior started <laughs> a long time ago, um, but we, didn't, we had limited choices. Today, plenty of great beer choices uh, to go around. There's plenty of beer to grow around, so we're sharing. So I say to pay it forward in the spirit of Malinsky, please share your little gems. Life's too short for bad beer. Don't you agree? <laughs> I, I would have to say that that's right on point with Dave. And as you talk about Dave yeah, wanting yeah. to pair his beer tips forward, I'm reminded of uh, probably at some point in the middle of the season that we were doing the House of Yards podcast I had yes. a chance to do a little bit of traveling and take some craft beers home with me. Um, don't put them in anything you're trying to sneak through security, but if you put it in a bag that you're checking, you're probably going to be fine. So I, I got home and I had a bit of an embarrassment of riches on my hands. And so I asked Dave for his address, just letting him know that I had a little something to send his way. I know he mm -hmm. was quite private, didn't know if he'd say yes or get weirded out, but right. um, he exactly. trusted me enough to give me his address. And I sent him a box. There were eight cans of craft beer from, a few different areas of the country and, and they were from breweries that he was not going to be able to get his hands on in Las Vegas. And I knew that the Eagle had landed when I got a text message from Dave that said something to the effect of when I was growing up, my ultimate fantasy was one day walking in the door to my house and the Laker girls were there. And today that fantasy has been topped with this craft beer delivery. So in the spirit of paying it forward, I think that he did his part and I was glad to do my own very little small part in reciprocating for him. That's beautiful. What a great story. 
<laughs> You're a good I love friend. your candor. <laughs> so I'm a, a beer girl and um, they have this thing in Philadelphia. Michael Jackson, not the singer, mm -hmm. the beer guru who writes books. He would come to Philadelphia, I'm sure other cities. And in Philadelphia, annually, he would have these beer and then food pairings. So he would talk about this beer and he would pick themes. So it would be Belgians or whatever. And he would have the caterers make specially custom, you know, meals. And we would be eating them. Every year it was in University of Penn's Museum of, am I telling you something you already know? I, I know a little bit about this Michael Jackson, but I, I don't know exactly where we're going. So please okay. continue. So in Philadelphia, it's held at Penn, University of Penn's Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology. Of course. So in the Egyptian section of the museum, we would be having this beer tasting. And of course, it's got food and all that. You know, it's paired with food. And he's talking about that. And this would go on for quite a while. And you're sitting among mummies <laughs> and other artifacts. And when it was done, they had a curtain and the curtain was pulled back. And then you walked into what I think is called the Chinese rotunda. And it's a big round room with very high ceiling and natural light coming in. And each all around are these, you know, statues of Buddha or whoever, whatever. And local brew companies would come in and set up their tables and you would go around sampling. So by the end of this, Let's just say you definitely needed an Uber <laughs> to drive <laughs> home. So I bring this up because one year, one of the local brew companies, and I live in Pennsylvania. So the bottom right corner of Pennsylvania is called the Delaware Valley. And it's New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. So local companies come there. And then you sample them, and then you buy things. It's perfect. It's, 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 it's lovely. It's great. It's fantastic. One year... I tasted, and this is what I wanted to ask you was, have you had a Heather Ale? I haven't. Tell me more about it. Okay. I, I'm standing at the table and he goes, this is a Heather Ale. And we're like, oh, not heard of this. And you sample it. And in the moment, this is, was my reaction. Wow. So you always try beers and they're memorable in their own way. The Heather Ale, it was like, this is, I don't know, this is pre-children. This is like, 15, 20 years ago, this thing was like a song. Okay, so this myth, the story is ship sunken, I think, off the coast of Wales. They go down, they get the bottles out of this ship. They culture the yeast, and this is now the child out of what was sitting at the bottom of the ocean. So this is more of a, a medieval era style beer, they say. I don't know. But anyway, I meet this and I go, this is unbelievable. So it was around that time that inspired this home brewing. We like, we have to do more of this. And at that session, I also had an alt ale. Do you, have you had an alt, A-L-T, German style beer? I think when I see it out here, yeah, because of the German style, I'll see it described as an alt beer, A-L-T-B-I-E-R, kind right. of is all one word. So it's I definitely gravitate toward hoppier beers, but haven't had enough alt beers in my day. Oh, well, we, we went home. Hubby's like inspired, God has kissed him, and he makes this beautiful alt. It's one of the first beers he ever made, and we called it Abraham's Alt because it's Old City, and we're doing this whole old testament thing going on there 
Uh, so Abraham's all, it was, it was poetry. So that was beautiful. So think about if you could find somewhere, you're in California, so you're in beer paradise, Heather Ale and try an alt. You know, everybody makes them differently. So that was fun. So thanks for sharing that. I just wanted to share my little beer nuggets with you as well. Lots of beer drinking with Dave. Yeah, <laughs> lots of beer. I know he was also really good when it came to wine and I, I think some spirits. I haven't worked my mm. way up that far yet, but the craft beer definitely was a, a good common bond between the two right. of us and, and now with you as well. Yes, exactly. Thank you. So next one goes with it is the bites. Dave was the original foodie before they invented the word foodie. I heard the word. I went, okay, let's again, it's, I'm at drinking this Heather ale going, Dave would love this. Um, so foodie. So rolling back the clock, this is the 1980s state college, central Pennsylvania, not a food Mecca for foodies. I mean, you're not going there for food. So you have limited choices. So my question is, he was a foodie then, and I'm guessing that he's a foodie later. <laughs> is that true? Absolutely. I would say that's an understatement. So oh, yes. as much as he's as much as he could have been a foodie then, and I'm curious what you have to say, I feel like that either stayed at the same level or perhaps even ratcheted up over the I years. think he ratcheted up because probably his bank account was ratcheted up. So <laughs> he finds this little new joint in State College, College Avenue. And it has a food type that was new, and I'm going to unveil it in a second. And this type of food, later, Tisa's like, this is the best food I have ever had in the United States. So I've been around. So different regions have different foods. And I go, oh, this is great food. And the first time I had it was in State College, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, what is this? Cajun. New Orleans I'm like, I, if I can only ever visit one food place in the United States again, I need to go back to New Orleans. So what happened was I was on a business trip there and business trips tend to be short and the entire East Coast is snowed in. So every airport from Maine all the way down beyond Orlando is closed. And I'm trying to get back to PHL, Philly. And the only air open airport is Miami. Well, what does that get me? The entire United States is traveling east is going to Miami. It doesn't get me anything. Oh, well, I guess I must stay. Another two nights in New Orleans. We ate at Paul Prudhomme's restaurant. We ate the place out. We were with other folks. <laughs> the food and drink in New Orleans is unreal. It was great. So that was my foodie with Dave. Constantly. It's tough to keep a waistline with this guy. <laughs> I was always amazed too by getting to meet up with him for it was the probably three or four of the longest lunches I've ever had are mm -hmm. the lunches that I was fortunate to enjoy with Dave and we went to uh, a really good Thai place called mm -hmm. Arawan Thai uh, that was near the original Lotus of Sam location in Vegas okay. um, Lotus yeah. was closed for a bit I believe they had a fire at the original spot so this was the next best option but Arawan Thai food was really good. We did uh, an American spot. My wife skews more toward a plant-based diet and he found yeah. a dynamite spot called Vegination in downtown Las Vegas. Even omnivores I've gone there with have by and large had exceptional things to say about it. Wow. He would just pick the best places, tailor them yes. to anybody's preferences across the group that would be attending. And I remember specifically Vegination because it was in downtown Vegas thinking, oh, yeah. 
all right, Dave's a big deal. I'm fortunate to be getting maybe an hour of his time for this lunch. My wife was with me. My older brother was with me. And I just parked on the street and there was metered parking with, you know, a time limit. I forget what the limit was, but I figured there's going to be no issue here. Like Dave's going to have better things to do sooner rather than later. Fast forward a few hours. And I think I spent as much time that afternoon going back and forth, feeding the meter to buy more time as I did at the table. Cause Dave just wanted to talk with all three of us about any of our interests. It was naturally for Dave, very little about him, all about everybody else. Um, almost except for sports betting, just my brother had experience working for a craft brewery. So Dave naturally wanted to hear about that. Um, my wife's background, he wanted to dig into that. My own interests beyond sports, just anything except for betting. And it, it was amazing doing these lunches with Dave where I had to feed the meter so many times because he just wanted to stay and, and talk and get appetizers and multiple desserts. If we were torn on dessert, by the way, his MO was to just order them all. Usually if there's two or three, just that way you can try everything. To your point, it, it's from a place of privilege when the bank account has grown to a certain point, but it's not always an either or equation. So on the food side of things, I feel yeah. like some experiences I got from that go far beyond ways to, uh, far beyond food and other ways to approach life. I love that. That's great. These um, irrational force dichotomies, uh, you know, I teach and I say, why does everything have to be a choice of two? And, and why is it these two? So, you know, I said, <laughs> uh, bless me. I've been working with medium young people for a long time. I mean, they're not toddlers. So anyway, so same. I'm prone to extremely long lunches as well. So why, why have a sandwich and run? That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that story. So moving on to my next B, Matt, are we keeping up books? Let's do it. Okay. So I want to know if you knew about this nugget with Dave. So. I meet him, he's like 22, 23, 24 years old. So imagine this. Okay, first of all, everybody listening and including Matt, imagine where you were and recall, where were you and what were you doing at age 22, 23, 24? Okay. By this time, David had already read approximately 95 out of the top 100 literature classics by age 24. So if you look up that list, Google it now, it's quite the array and range of topics. So Dave's interests and his ability to read, but I think he was personally, I think he was just consuming them. Um, He knew everything. He just had a great thirst for learning and curiosity that you don't see in most people. Dave's academics at that time, he had finished, um, he had all but one class done in his communication major at Penn State. He did not need to complete it. He had already moved on. He had his own business. But I was curious as when I come along, he was seriously considering. So we took a trip to Annapolis, Maryland to look at a university called St. John's College, literally next to the Naval Academy. And this program, if you look it up, so those of you who have you are typing, uh, St. John's College, and it is basically the study of the world's greatest pieces of literature, seminar style. So it's a prof sitting around a table with 20 students discussing the classics. And they could be the Greeks, the Bible, 
of the French classics. Um, it could be logic, um, analogies, dialectics. Um, it was just everything. And to him, that was paradise. So I felt like finally he'd have a peer group to talk to instead of um, the, the geniuses running around uh, State College. So that was ideal for Dave. He did not enroll. He went down, he interviewed, he talked about it. He thought about it quite a bit. Um, so um, <laughs> can you imagine the best and brightest of us being stuck with people like me? <laughs> I never understood who he was, who was his peer group to talk to about literature and bounce ideas off us. But his favorite book at the time was The Brothers Karamazov, if I'm pronouncing it correctly by Dostoevsky. He loved that book. He would talk about it. So the question I have for you, Matt, is did you know that he read everything? He just had a great love for books and literature. I appreciate the specifics that you shared because I knew that Dave was a voracious reader. Okay. I didn't know to that level what the classics or looking at St. John's College just to really dig in even further. But as I recall, his point blank column would weave in Shakespeare. I think there was a reference yes. to LeBron James as a King Lear themed column when <laughs> LeBron was with the Cleveland Cavaliers as basically a one man team trying to take down a dream team in the Golden State Warriors at the time in the NBA finals. He would find these parallels. So when he talks about who was his peer group, I feel like he could just like dip in and out of different lanes. And he had, he had yeah. multiple peer groups just depending on the topic. And yeah. while he would write about Shakespeare in his point blank column, he would also occasionally reference reading Sophocles to wind down at night. Like who, whose idea of getting ready as a pre-bedtime routine is breaking out Sophocles. I think that's a, a very unique type of person we're working with here. And then also one standout memory from the glimpse I got into his house while he was very private. Um, the, yes. the day after his body was found on Mount Charleston, I was fortunate to be part of an inner circle of some family and friends that gathered at his home in Las Vegas. Thank you. And I think every National Geographic edition that had ever been printed was inside his house. There was just everything. And one more I'll run by you here. I'm thinking yeah. about it in the moment. There is a book that a good friend of mine had written. I have a friend, Christopher Harris, formerly of ESPN, now has his own massive, wildly successful fantasy football podcast. But Chris okay. is an MFA and his true passion is in writing novels. And he's also a big rock and roll fan. So Chris had written kind of his tribute to rock and roll. It's called War on Sound. And I was getting through, it was my first time dabbling with an audiobook. And as I'm listening to the audiobook, I just happened to mention in passing to Dave that I have a friend, Chris, who used to work at ESPN, but he's also a really accomplished writer. Okay. Here's his latest book. Dave read through, Dave bought and read through the entire physical book before I could get through the audiobook in my timeline. I, I'm doing the passive, easy, supposedly quicker, quote unquote, reading experience. Dave actually just gets through it in no time. That's the kind of guy that he was. So um, not only the beer and the bites, but with the books, that absolutely resonates as well. Exactly. It's amazing. Amazing. All right. Uh, next category, movies. Um, <laughs> um, at the time, his favorite movie was Casablanca. And my guess is that he really related to the Rick character. And... Um, I think this is part of Dave's ethos is choosing the right path, even if it's hard. That's part of his 
wiring his modus operandi, his value system. That would be my guess. Um, and if necessary, it has to trump uh, feelings. So I agree that Dave uh, was on a noble quest, um, a quest of um, doing right and virtue. So I was forced to watch this movie and I went, okay. <laughs> well, my reaction at the end was no. And he's like, yes. So we come at the movie. One of us is a little more ahead and one of us is hard, but that's what makes the yin and yang of a relationship beautiful. But he was into movies and the, um, one I don't know if he mentioned often was a movie that came out in the eighties. Uh, it was called dinner with Andre and it's two men sitting at a table talking mostly. And the walk home from the movie theater was Malinsky in his prime dissecting this movie and having thesis and, and explaining it. And I went, um, she's playing checkers. He's playing chess. And I'm like, did we see the same movie? He, he was brilliant at analysis and critical thinking, very independent thinker. So did, were you aware of his love for movies and did he share any, or maybe did you see one with him? I was aware of his love for Casablanca specifically because the last episode we did of House of Yards to cap off that 2017, 2018 NFL season, Great. our Super Bowl show, he mentioned that if the game were to get out of hand at any point, then his plan was to put Casablanca on the big TV and just have the game off to the side on mute, still keeping an eye on it in case anything happened to get interesting later on. But otherwise, he knew that if the Super Bowl was a dud in terms of the game itself, then he had better plans for his Super Sunday. Part of me thinks he almost wanted the game to be non-competitive just to give him that excuse to watch Casablanca for the umpteenth time. Right. And I feel a lot like having seen that movie a lot myself, my wife and I are huge fans of it. We have a Casablanca poster above the couch in our living room. And I, I feel like the parallel I see between Dave and Rick is that Rick was somebody who was looked up to from so many people across so many different walks of life. And, and he was always the problem solver. And, and I feel like there's the notion in my head of everybody's playing chess or excuse me, everybody's playing checkers and Rick is the one playing chess. That was just Dave, like always a step ahead, mm -hmm. such a quick creative thinker, great problem yes. solver, uh, trying to handicap the NFL or many other sports at the level he did required great problem solving, but so much of what he did across his life with his, you know, what he did with a lot of his friends who had a passion for Mount Charleston, uh, there were just so many different areas where he had such a level of expertise and was always in such commands, kind of like how Rick, it was always in charge, whatever room he's in. That to me felt a lot like knowing Dave as well. Thank you. For those at home listening to this, I snuck in the movie thing that was not on my original lineup. So thank you for sharing. Great to hear that he still loves it and will use literally any excuse to watch that movie again. So doesn't apparently doesn't take much. <laughs> Number four was Bruce. Dave and I met at a time I call the space between notes. Um, I unflatteringly called the era of the early eighties, a barren wasteland of music. Um, we are post the Beatles, Zeppelin, old Genesis, Eagles, Motown. We're, we're kind of beyond that. Disco balls literally were being taken down when I appear onto this campus and meet him. And America was dressed up in my love with Madonna and her tool and flocks of seagulls were flying across the skies of America. It was 80s music. And I had literally my head on the desk 
forehead slap going, oh my gosh, just my luck. Not, you know, it's great music in its own way, but not, not the classic. So at this time, Matt, hang in there with me. We were literally transitioning from vinyl to eight track was kind of done. We were solidly in the cassette era and the nice. CD was coming along and we didn't know if that was going to last. So many of us had the dark side of the moon on every single version of media, every format. Anyway, Dave, student of Pittsburgh's own FM station 102.5, aptly named WDVE, was raised on a state diet of good old classic rock. So his taste and my taste in music were similar. Thank goodness. Um, I would describe his interest in music as hmm, um, gritty ballads. <laughs> <laughs> sung by men with lots of horn sections in some of these bands. Uh, so our taste was pretty, pretty similar. But he introduced me. Oh, but he particularly loved poetic lyrics. The lyrics meant everything. So he introduced me to Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Yes, no, Matt? Heard of them? Oh, okay. Next one, the title of the section is Bruce. He was a Springsteen fan. Is that true? Is that my old memory working? I think if we were to go back and, and tally up all the times that Dave queued up what he would call the jukebox in the point blank column, a, a time or two every week, he would drop in a, a YouTube video to a live recording, oh. almost always classic rock. And Bruce may have outnumbered every other artist combined. <laughs> and I think that part of it was that the Dave that I knew in his mid to later 50s. Yes. I've heard that he had developed an appreciation for how Springsteen did some of his best work after the age of 60. And I think that Dave was getting to that part of his life where, okay, mid to late 50s, it's maybe the back nine as a lot of people would refer to it. Sure. But I feel like when I first met Dave, he talked about his life as being maybe in like the the late second quarter. I, I'm mixing my sports metaphors here. Sure, back sure. nine in golf, late second quarter if we're talking basketball. But um, I... I I like that because it showed me that he still had, you know, a, a lot of aspiration to do different things and, and make yes. a positive contribution and continue to grow at his craft. So I think right. not just the music, but the a, a lot of the the growth within Bruce Springsteen's catalog and otherwise that Dave witnessed was really inspiring to him. In fact, for those watching on YouTube, I do have my Springsteen t-shirt on from seeing him earlier this year in Denver. My wife and I made the trip to see Bruce and he wrapped up as he does, I think with most songs on his current tour with one of his newer songs. It's called I'll See You In My Dreams. And it's from his Letter To You album that dropped in 2020. And it just felt so fitting to have that cap off my it was my first time seeing Bruce. Obviously, Dave was very top of mind. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, Springsteen then, absolutely that that appreciation, I could say, only grew over the years. <laughs> Good thing I nailed it. <laughs> um, my interest in Springsteen is, isn't quite the Molinsky fever pitch. He was, Springsteen was huge. Uh, we'd walk into our professor's offices and there'd be the Springsteen with the butt pose, you know, that poster. Yeah, it was, he was everywhere. Anywho, have you heard of this other one? Molinsky introduced me to John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. 
So that doesn't ring a bell off the top of my head, but I bet if I were to dig up again, all those point blank columns, I, I would he bet that he found a way to there. sneak in, sneak in a song a, a time or two. Cause yeah. as much as he would go with Bruce or sometimes it would be, you know, I remember the Almond brothers, the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. there would be artists that I had never heard of that maybe didn't have the biggest following, but that still really resonated with him. So they, they very well could have been on that short list. So, this is a, so I'll wrap up the music thing. At the time, um, Steve Winwood had an album that was pretty big. And the big song from that album was Higher Love. And we played that song quite a lot. But that is about as pop as he would go. I believe it was my album. I probably had it on CD, actually. Um, and the odd thing was that song came on the radio today as I was driving from church mm. back home. And I thought, what do you think the chance of that is? Okay, now you would challenge me back. Yes, the presets on my radio are to classic stations, but nonetheless, so I'll slip Winwood in there. Anyway, it's a beautiful song. Um, two th other things, Dave's selection tended to favor male oriented bands, but he had this like irrational love for some of these female rockers. And I'm like, they're not performing like lyrically or the music uh, or their singing is not on the caliber of the rest of his repertoire. And so I'm looking at this, like, is this eighties? Like, you remember the getups of the eighties? Is it like the hair? Is it the makeup? Is the, you know, forerunner of spandex? I'm like, I never, like <laughs> this woman is not in, I, I just like, he, he digs chicks. That's all I could say. I'm like, Okay, whatever. Maybe he saw the genius and I did not. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, but my music at the time ran more like U2, Grateful Dead, uh, Pink Floyd was huge for me, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt. So that was my taste. But together we discovered this guy named Stevie Ray Vaughan, this prodigy blues tech from Texas, blues guitarist. He was amazing. His band was called The Double Trouble. So I'm going to leave you with this pay it forward, Malinsky treat. Treat yourself to um, a tiptoe through Stevie Ray Vaughan's repertoire. Some of them are called Tin Pan Alley, Love Struck Baby, Pride and Joy was pretty popular, and Cold Shot, which is kind of funny. And one is Shake For Me. And I thought that was funny because he kind of liked it because it's a little gritty and it's a little naughty. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that Malinsky? He's, he likes the fun and he likes it a little gritty and he likes it a little naughty, but nothing too over the top. So that one would be the one, shake it for me. I just, what I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just too funny. Anyway, Malinsky was into paying it forward. So one year for my birthday, he bought me an acoustic guitar and I played the piano. And I think both of us, he didn't play any music. He couldn't play a lick of anything, but he loved everything about music. He loved the lyrics, he loved the showmanship. He loved everything about it. So he was a great um, consumer of it. And I thought it was amazing gift. This is not like a $2 gift. And then I taught myself a song and then I'll tell you what song in a second. And then when I was done with it, it was here at my house. Um, a friend's daughter, her name was Annie. Annie wanted to learn how to play the guitar. In the spirit of Malinsky, it was always take from what you have, whatever you have, and pay it forward. So I did give it to Annie, and she taught herself guitar. And that 
guitar went to her with her to college. She's now a grown young lady. And the only request was to pay it forward. It couldn't sit and it had, and it couldn't go to a landfill, just give it to somebody and no judgment, whether they played it or not, if they asked, you know, and just be a good soul and pay it forward. So Dave was really into that. The funny little thing is the very first song I taught myself on the guitar. So I'm rudimentary was Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. <laughs> and I taught it, learned the song when I lived in a convent for one year. And I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> was uh, anybody who was in the convent with you aware of your learning to play the song? Did you ever get a, a bit of an audience in a, no, a very ironic no. setting for it? <laughs> this was not Dominican approved material. So you know, this, they were the Dominican sisters. That's what I lived with. I was the youth minister in a town and the, the sisters I lived with ran the school and helped at the local university. They did different things around the community. So fairly, central Pennsylvania, uh, fairly can be poor and the sisters did lots and lots of charity work. So I was living with the sisters that good year, that one year. So, so that was a little bit about music. Did you like where I learned to play the song? quietly in my room. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a perfect pairing though. Like you said, with uh, Stevie Ray, you know, I think it was one of the Stevie Ray songs you mentioned, uh, a little nice and a little naughty. It's like learning Margaritaville at the convent. It's, that juxtaposition nice. is is very on brand. <laughs> I'm a nice girl, but I'm just a little naughty. All right. So the last one of the fifth one of the bees was the betting business. So some of you know Dave from his business as a handicapper. Some of us did not. So just a couple nuggets. I believe the Molinsky family can correct me. Some of you, so they knew that, but he started writing for a local newspaper at the tender age of 17. 17, if you recall, is somewhere around the age of a junior in high school. I've got one, I would know. And then um, by the time he meet Dave in his young 20s, he already had his full business running. So he had a business, an office, employees. He was pumping out whatever that whole handicapping thing was doing. I come along. He has a penthouse apartment, two-bedroom. Corner is lovely. And he had his own car. <laughs> and that's what I see. I enter on the scenes, like 23, 24, somewhere around there. So I ask him what he does for business. And he tells me I'm a handicapper. I don't know the full sentence he said. And I went, handicapping. What? Handicap? I'd never heard the word, never heard the expression. And I go, wow, like that is totally amazing. Because my major is this thing called rehabilitation. It's kind of a cross between counseling, psychology, social work, and medicine. And my specialty is working with brain traumatized people who are handicapped, and I'm trying to help them on the road to recovery. And the poor, the dear soul, he knew what I was down a totally different path. <laughs> uh, let's just call it a um, different kind of handicapping. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess I fall in the category of being very sweet and charming. But people will ask me, did Dave bet? And I was never aware of Dave, Dave ever placing a bet. There is no evidence of that. Now, I don't know everything. I'm not crawling inside his bank account. But I never saw he would set the odds or the lines or whatever it was, but never knew him to bet. So um, Dave's 
Dave's view about his income was I make money so I can use my money to help people. Dave was acta non verba. He was deeds, no words. We're not going to talk about anything. We're just doing. I thought that was interesting. So there was not a lot of talking about it. And there was never a hint of like nefarious or anything. I thought that was interesting. So that was my take on the business. And there ends my sole knowledge about whatever in the world he was doing with handicapping. So over time, as you got to know him better, mm -hmm. uh, aside from the very endearing anecdote about mistaking handicapping uh, for, for another meaning that, that first time around, Charming. was there anything that came into your purview when it came to Dave the Handicapper? Or I, I, I can let the cat out of the bag. He did place a bet or two from time to time over oh, the years. Um, okay. Did that enter into the relationship at any point down the road or, or with you? How much of it was like so many of the rest of us, Dave would want to talk about anything except for betting or how much of it because of your special relationship might have been, hey, this is what I do. I'd like you to have maybe at least some level of understanding with it. Did he try to, you know, bring that into your life in any meaningful way? He only brought it in because I asked what it was and how you what it was. And that was only re reactive, never proactive. There isn't a, I don't know if I've ever said this, there isn't a sport that by the time I'm in college, I don't play competently. I can golf, I basketball, baseball, anything. I can do anything. Um, product of four older brothers, there is no choice. You will, you know, we need a short stuff. <laughs> so there you go. We had our own team. So. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. um, no, there was no excessive talking about sports. The only thing is sports is always on TV, but sports are played at certain times of the day. And there's huge portions of the time where the TV is not on and he's reading and it's a very quiet life. So it never really ever consumed saying you have a job and I have a job and we're each doing our job and then we come together. But yeah, it's it, it in no way consumed the air of the conversation. And there was no talking about sports. <laughs> so I had the same, I have, I have a Landis experience. We're going to talk about everything other than sports and betting on sports. I'd love to dig into that a bit more and move mm -hmm. on from this. Like, again, I think of it as a mini game of Jeopardy. You set up with all the, the different categories. The five B's plus movies is a bonus about Dave. A bonus so yeah. <laughs> thank you for the primer there. And digging in more into how you met Dave and how the relationship progressed. How would you describe that time of your life? Uh, uh, well, the, the beating, I, I think is funny. I'm not sure he, he characterize it this way, but you get just my half of the story. So you, when you get to heaven, you can ask him the question. So the meeting of Dave, um, you know, it's, I'll just explain the first part of the story was, um, so I'll frame it as Dave ends up becoming the investor arm of char charities he has positioned himself as a benefactor and he sees me as entering into this enterprise that he has running very much a philanthropist and he's doing this in different ways and so he goes i'm um, an easy recruit because i, I we, we can, we're not going to talk sports and betting <laughs> this is what we spend our time talking about so the first meeting the first part is 
at this time, I'm at Penn State, and Penn State at the time has like 32, 36,000 students, and one third of the student body is Roman Catholic. And they have their own chapel building, multi-denominational. If you're a re registered religion, you can be in this building. The Catholics own probably, I'd say at least three offices. So next door is the Lutherans, next door to us was the Episcopalians. Across the hall is some lovely, I can't remember them, um, non-denominational group. And we're, you know, this is in the building. And at the time, and for the four years I lived there, I was part of that community and I was co-leading for the last two years, this enterprise. That's a lot of Holy Communion to give out on a Sunday. <laughs> we were running quite an operation and we had these three priests from the famous town of Lipshore, Pennsylvania, home of Rolling Rock. And uh, they were Benedictines. What? Maybe they were Benedictines, I don't recall. So anyway, I come along and I am quite in my element here and I'm running this student organization and I was called to a meeting two doors down with the Episcopalian. So I walk into this room and the room is pretty filled. I'm on town. The room is filled with students and everybody's jammed around a little coffee table and it's all mishmash of students. And I take the last seat and sitting across from me is, I'm still in touch with her, um, civil engineer girlfriend sitting right across me, she's Episcopalian. And I nod to her and the meeting starts and I am controlling, I'm in command of what's going on here. They're not starting this meeting until I get there because I will get things done in a very nice way, but I'm a doer and we're a plan and do. And so we need, and I'm the Catholic representative and I have no idea what father wants to do, but he's, he's, he's going to run this. So I walk in the room and I absolutely in no way even notice that he's in this room. This is not a big room. <laughs> and he is sitting right behind my girlfriend and I'll pay any attention. And my eyes are on the priest. He's talking, he's laying it out, got my notebook. And the first time I noticed him was when he speaks and I hear a male's voice and I went, there's a dude here. And I look up and I pay no attention to him. He makes whatever statement he says, blah, blah, blah. Meeting ends and I leave. However, out of the mouth, Dave Malinsky, he noticed me. So Dave is now trying to orchestrate second meeting. And this is where it gets funny. Every year, apparently, Malinsky hosts a Christmas party and it's fairly formal and you're supposed to dress up for this thing. And he makes sure that I'm going to get an invite to this party and that it's orchestrated in a way that I, I'm not showing up to a strange man's house I don't know alone. So he's like, oh, and so it's told to me that all these people that I would know are invited. So I go with my very good girlfriend. And he lives in an apartment where you just don't walk in. It's not, it's never not a building students would ever walk into. It's a nice place. <laughs> and we get buzzed in or whatever. And he has his um, bouncers at the door. And Malinsky over the doorway of his apartment, he has mistletoe hanging right at the door and he's part of the team greeting people and the payment was you had to kiss him to get in the door so matt this is when you tell the people listening to this that tisa is quietly shaking her head no and he there's a line because you know this is a slow process this isn't going to kiss you on your hand 
gentlemanly. This isn't kissing you on the forehead. This isn't a kiss on the cheek. He's going to plant a kiss on every single female here. And I'm like, no. So divine providence has it where he gets called away with his hostly duties. And I, um, Beth and I slip in the door. And we go not in the living room. He had like two living rooms. So he, there's a back living room. So we're in the back. I've not been there. He spends the rest of his time hunting me down, trying to get this kiss out of me. And I'm not giving it up. And I am extremely unhappy about this. I think this is very low, very crass. And there's a whole string of things that I say about this. And I basically said, Beth and I, and we leave. We're in this apartment a very short amount of time. So that was my first two meetings. I totally ignored them, paid no attention. And now I have very unhappy opinions about this um, hound dog running around kissing these women at this party. And I'm like, oh boy, this is not my cup of tea. So those are the meetings of Walensky. <laughs> and I, I couldn't tell you what happens from there. So what I can tell you is I never see him really up in the chapel building. And I'll just segue from there. He had had a, an arrangement only with the Roman Catholics, the Episcopalian Lutheran. He, he really liked these gentlemen. Um, he really liked uh, the Episcopalian and the Lutheran priests. So he made an arrangement that he was on speed dial for them, that at any time they were running programs and they had a short, they had a program they want to run and they needed money. They had a program and they needed hands. He was happy to help them, but he's not up hanging around with students. He had a relationship with the adults, the leaders with this. And then when I came along, I was brought in by Dave as part of this. And there were two or three strict um, terms of the agreement. He was only to hear from the priests and they would tell him what their need was. He was not going to take phone calls from students. And it was to be 100% under strict confidentiality that nobody else needed to know who was funding or benefactor the phil philanthropist was his name was never uttered now i would i can tell you this honestly i was running the joint <laughs> i was the head student there was two leaders we were running it i never saw him never heard his word name ever voice never saw him so he's not up there running around looking for chicks he was sincerely running this, being very general. He gave her a lot of money. Um, two, when, if the money was to go to the student, how the student was given or received this money, let's say he was giving them money or paying tuition, they were not to know who he was. And the experience of receiving this gift had to be connected firmly back to their um, awareness or relationship with God. They had to understand that God was in their life and meeting their needs using human hands, that they had to have a, a better connection with church, that God gave us this church. The church is divine by God, designed by God and that they had a better church experience or they had this better view of these ministers, these priests who were serving God's people. So it wasn't like Christmas morning and I ripped the package and go, cool, Barbie's dream house. And that was the end experience that they had this movement in their faith life 
And the last piece is the part he enjoyed is he enjoyed talking to the priest about how this intervention would land in the world, the creativity of this, how this gift was going to be unveiled to the students. He reveled and delighted in this concocting these plans. So if I could, I just wanted to tell one story. This one, I just like, I was yeah. blown away by this one. Please do. Yeah, give us a peek behind the curtain on some of the specifics right. of how this came to life. He hears from the priest that this one young lady, she was a top student. She was admirable in a thousand different ways. And I said to him, I think if you could throw me over for Amy, you would. And he said, man, this, she, was, she, was quite, she was quite lovely in a very wholesome way. But let's just... Uh, for, let's ignore the fact that she also had her own bow that she ended up marrying, but that's a small detail. She was worthy of admiration. So Amy was running a Bible study and the priests say she is um, not returning to school. The girl is tapped out with cash and this was not a threat. So she had confided in the priest and she wasn't asking anything, but she was running the Bible study. <laughs> so Dave's concoction was um, the kids who met for Bible study each put in like a dollar or whatever, 50 cents. They pulled the money and they would order a cheap pizza and they would have it delivered. So Dave finds this out and calls that pizza joint and says, on this date and time, if this girl calls, I want you to call me. So on the day, the phone call comes and he runs, he gets the call and he runs down the street, the four to six blocks to this pizza joint. And in this envelope, he has handwritten her out. To say there's a thousand dollars in this envelope is probably true. So he was basically funding her college tuition for a semester or her room and board, whatever she needed, straight up cold, hard cash. And he had handwritten a note. Now he's speaking and he's talking to, he's connecting to a girl. He had inside information of what her struggle was. So he could write and make this spiritual, faithful connection. He needed to pivot her and say, you're in the game. He loves you. He's here. He knows your dilemmas. Keep talking about, right? So he writes this note. She never knows. This is the first utterance of this story I've ever said aloud. She doesn't know it's him. She never knows who it is. He doesn't. It's not about Molinsky. It's about this faith journey that you're on, that God is real and that God is here. And he's trying to help you along the way. It was brilliant. So, the pizza company has to put it in there. So she sees it <laughs> and it's not stuck to the pizza and it's not stuck to the lid and it doesn't go flying away. And it's all executed beautifully. So the, it, it, was, it was just the delivery of it. And in the note, he includes this thing, which now we call decades later, pay it forward. You cannot be the recipient of a good book tip, a good beer tip, a good song, a good hug, uh, kindness of any kind and not pay it forward. So in the Malinsky world is that you are supposed to be actively, aggressively, persistently finding opportunities to help people at every turn and you're supposed to do it. And there's no conversation, you just do it. And this is, and then, so if you get a windfall, you 
plow it forward, plow it forward. This was, this was a driving theme in his life. And, uh, and so he was calling these people to pay it forward, pay it forward. That one was, it was spectacularly done. And I just could, and I wasn't there, but I could see him hoofing it down with his, you know, million dollars flying out of his pocket. It was just very funny. So he totally, totally enjoyed it. I think she was just a prize moment for him because she was such a great person. That's such a remarkable story. It it really strikes a chord with, again, not just Dave the handicapper, but Dave the person, a real testament to his character and about, mm-hmm. I think, the most concrete form that that could be expressed. So, Tisa, first yeah. off, thank you for sharing that story. And mm-hmm. to tie it in with how you met Dave, and mm-hmm. I recall you mentioning the charity planning meeting where you ignored him, essentially, the Christmas mm-hmm. party that you could not escape fast enough and then a lot of the charity work was done anonymously. Even some of these moments that you were not present for, didn't know it was him. It mm-hmm. seems like that spirit is ultimately something that really drew you to Dave. So while you may not recall the specifics of the immediate next steps from the infamous Christmas party, can you walk us through what you do recall about getting to know Dave and moving on from the pretty poor first impression it sounds like he had on you? It's definitely a, a 0 for 2, strike out. <laughs> Swing a foul tip. No, I don't think he, no connection with the ball at all. <laughs> so I, I don't recall, sadly, um, our very first date, but he started dating and immediately there was a connection. So once we start to know each other, veneer off social fails, you know, so, you know, whatever people do. And we start talking about who we are, what makes us tick. We had an under um, something in common that didn't need to be unpacked fully. And that was a very common faith life. And this was operating actively in both of us. Not true of most 20 somethings. Um, We were not walking away from our faith. It was operating out. And my career direction was helping professions, different kind of handicap than his. And he was using his money to help people. So that's what I think um, strong faith, family, simplicity of life life and lifestyle. That's where we started. And once we connected, we had just a billion things in common and differences, but you know, again, yin yang uh, piece from there. I remember lots of eating out. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, no dorm food. Um, But I I couldn't tell you the first date, but I'm sure he was lovely and appropriate and walked me home and that sort of thing. And what about some of the highlights, not necessarily the first date or even the second date, but thinking about the the arc of the relationship and, and to the point that you were engaged to be married. What was it like, I guess, in that sense, moving on from the mm-hmm. over to, as you put it, to getting to the point that yeah. for a while mm-hmm. he was the one that you were planning to marry? He's, he's absolutely a gem, a treasure. He's just fantastic. Um so we start dating and it's pretty clearly obvious that this is a, you know, a well-matched lineup. And so we're pretty much inseparable. And then near the end, um, now I've lived several seasons with this um, betting handicap thing. And Dave is ready to move on. Think Can you clarify the, moving on? Well, my first thought when I hear that is moving on from a relationship, oh, no, no, but I'm not, not sure that's where we're going. He business-wise, he has closed the operation where he had all these employees, and he's pretty much a one-man shop. 
and he wants to go to Vegas. Say what? <laughs> Country bumpkin from Pennsylvania. <laughs> he wants to move to Vegas. So we're going to get married and go where? And um, I was um, shell-shocked and um, I was the chalk and awe of this gargantuan leap of leaving Happy Valley, getting married and moving um, to Sin City was, um, a, it was very far, it was a bit far. Cause he'd been basically working out of his home. Again, the first homework you ever heard of, Dave Malinsky, it's commonplace now. Um, the, it was, and he, I think I was gonna go to grad school and he was planning on paying for that. We're just gonna move on to be married. This whole world that you all live in, this is not my world that sports runs 364 days a year. And I realized there's never, it's never gonna stop. <laughs> and though I play sports competently, this is not my life. And I was having a massive um, concern. And so I'm just gonna be honest, I was operating out of fear. Now, and we all know there's God and God is love. So anything that's not love is not from God. And I'm fearful at this point. I'm fearful by the commitment. What am I getting myself into? What is this whole Malinsky world? And his life and lifestyle, I realized, was going to be driving the bus. He himself as a person is wonderful. But I didn't really want to be married to handicapping and sports 24-7. And going into Sin City seemed like a phenomenally. I'd never been there. Heard stories. Mm, they make movies about it. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, so I'm in this crossroads between Dave's modus operandi, which is uh, like bona fide. He's like the be of good faith. If Dave was to do a sermon, it would be two words, be good. Um, Dave is, you know, all charity and he's, he's a doll. He's a sweetheart. He's, he's great. He's truth and he's justice and he's American way. But I, I was having not a problem with his code of conduct. It was this lifestyle thing. And was operating out of fear, which makes you very small and timid and not super rational. So it was a what, crisis for me. And with that in mind, mm -hmm. what do you recall about maybe there was a singular moment? Maybe it was the accumulation of these thoughts over a certain period of time, but realizing that the right thing for you was to call it off. Yeah. Uh, so we had 100 million conversations about it. And that seemed to be the right thing. And he he actually brokered an interim step. He said, what if we just, hey, we're not getting married and I'll move somewhere, but I'm still in, in the world in the picture. And we did that for a while. And then eventually, I had eventually moved back to Pennsylvania. We, the conversations were going on. So the marriage was called off, like as in getting married. And we were in a relationship for a while. Um, and then a series of unfortunate, it would make a good, a decent movie. I don't know if it would make a good movie. So I'm ending this relationship. I'm having a tough time saying yes to the lifestyle. Um, I'm now in grad school back in the Philadelphia area. And then unexpectedly, my father dies. I'm on a charity project. My car is vandalized. <laughs> um, I'm living in an apartment, <laughs> very sadly the only thing stolen out of my apartment was my engagement ring from Dave, which was a per mm. nearly perfect diamond because he thought it was wonderful and perfect, which is lovely for a girl to feel. And it was like, I was in grad school, I was working full time. It was like pounding, pounding, pounding. 
lots of responsibility. And then it was at the, around the time of the death of my father. I was actually put on the airplane by my father on the day of his my father's birthday, or was the day after, it was right at his birthday. I had flown to Vegas to visit Dave, and he by then had moved to Vegas, and I was visiting, and he's in his office working, and he took, his phone rang, and he took a phone call, and he came out, and he sat me down very tenderly and said, your father's died, and he helped me make arrangements to fly immediately back, and he said, I'll be there, make the arrangements, and I'll be there. And it was at that time we said, I think it's time that we, like the chapter, we, we had moved, we were moving on in different directions. So I was going to stay in Philly and I continued with my graduate work. And then he was now Vegas bound. And it was amicable, but he helped bridge me through this process. So it's just different lifestyles. And I was continuing on, I was doing pastoral counseling because I was going to get my doctorate and do, um, I was going to become a psychologist, but very Christian bent orientation. Wow. So that's a lot coming at you in a yeah. very compressed period of time. Right. And, so like and I don't two, know that. Two knights in shining armor, David and my dad, were both exiting the scene at the same time. And I'm like, no. No, I admit that I was the catalyst for one of them ending. I had nothing to do with my father's ending. So I just want to go on record for that. So where do you go from there? So you dig deep, um, recenter, faith life. I'm already a very active, faithful person. And you do what most people do, which is baby steps one day at a time. And I knew where I wanted to go with my career. And um, so, um, you know, godly interventions of people along the way. So my family is shattered. My father died at 59. I am 59. So each child that they get the 59 goes, okay. <laughs> um, I don't have the same arrhythmia that he has, but I have the, I'm the one child with the arrhythmia. My mother goes, great, fantastic. Keep it together, girl. Um, so I just started going to school. So my focus was get, get my doctorate and go on that path. And I ended up with a day job because I had a mildly biology background, medical background from undergrad. I ended up taking a job at a pharmaceutical company. And once I got there, immediately they said, we have this job as a trainer. And I had been in this, um, this major, where, which is housed in the college education. So I had taken a billion education classes. And I go, I can teach. And so I started teaching adults um, everything about the pharmaceutical process, about science and um, databases and you name it, the process. I started learning it and I've been teaching and I've been teaching it for 30 something years. So I, there's really not much about pharma I don't know at this point. Now, the deep science, I'm not a scientist. I don't make that individual project product. But I, my job is when you come to the company, I'm your corporate angel, and I teach you your job. And the faster you get it and you're confident is better for all of us. And that's what I do. So I started um, one thing led to another, and then I stopped becoming a psychiatrist. And I've been doing corporate training and um, – and then from there, I started my own consulting company. And so over time, I just became more confident, more confident, more capable, more skilled. And so I've been in companies and running my own firm. Uh, I started my very first firm in uh, 1993 when I didn't know better to say no. I just, I jumped in and then started doing that. And then, you know, 
so just consulting employment. And then the next wrinkle was um, after consulting was real estate investing. I started reading and realizing I'm doing active income. I needed to do passive income and I'm the CFO for my family. So I started learning more and more about finance. I've got a knack for it. And so I've just been running the finances now for my family for the years we've been married. And yeah, so I just started growing, growing from there and dug out of it and then realized along the way. But um, spiritually, I think some of the concerns and you, you eat your anxiety and concern and it shows up in your body. So for me, it showed up like an arrhythmia and some other other things because it's just life is gritty and tough and eking it out. And I've had where the employer, you know, has laid off 50 to 70,000 people and I'm one of them. So I was the family breadwinner at one point. I was never even raised to even have a job. <laughs> it was just, girl, you just go to college and we'll see what happens from there. I, we weren't, the girls weren't raised to have, have careers. So I thought it was funny that I ended up becoming the breadwinner. And um, so um, when I lost my job, my husband, who was a stay-at-home parent, he switched. Um, so he, we always had somebody home with the children. So then for the last several years, I've been home with the children. Ironically, our, we were never able to have children. My husband had cancer. I've had cancer. We weren't able to have children. We adopted the children. And you don't need to hear all about that. But the children have their own um, challenges all children do, but our second son is from Guatemala. He has definitely significant developmental delays. And I said, Lord, oh, now I get it. I get it. So all of that undergrad experience dealing with people, um, my undergrad was a perfect fit for the child that I would end up. So I was able to very successfully help coach him and guide him and the teachers all the way through because this myriad of background that I had, um, it's really difficult and challenging having uh, you know, a developmentally different child because it's just very difficult. But our focus has just for 20 years, uh, he just turned 20, has been you know, about him. And there's not a lot of space for a lot of extra things because you know, it's, it's difficult and challenging. So one day I did, I did get in touch with David and oddly, I thought this is great when I met you, your name is Matthew. David. And yes. um, when I married my husband, I said to him, he knew about David, I said, I would really love to name one of our children I, as odd as it is for David. And uh, he said, I'm open to that. And so our very first child we were to adopt was going to be named David and that adoption fell through. Uh, we had 14 adoptions <laughs> fall through. So that was just my, my first wow. And, and um, Mateo came to us with a name already constructed. Um, and he's from Central America. So they had a name and his name is Spanish version of your name. He is Mateo David and he has our last name. So we call him Mateo David. And I said, Oh, I got my David and that is your name. <laughs> and I went, Oh, this is all so poetic. So then I met you and I said, Oh my gosh. You're the age that if Dave and I had gotten married, we had a child, he would be your age. So I thought, this is all just stinking. <laughs> oh, little full circle. I thought it was just beautiful. So I said, you, you okay? So I call um, Mateo, Mateo, and I call him Teo. Um, so I thought, 
but usually if somebody in our family's name is Matthew, we call them by their proper name. My husband will refer to me by my proper name. He calls me Teresa. And, uh, but everybody, everybody calls me Tisa. And I thought that's funny. I said, I might slip in a Matthew or everyone's want. So that's our little story that you crawl out of it. I felt like I really rift, rifted my, mm-hmm. my time vortex. I caused a delay in the, and and my my path or my development and it was nitty gritty um digging out of it and dad's death really 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 didn't it compounded the, my sorrow and misery but you channel and get back the basics and then dig out of it and there is light um lord is with you and you he, he so what you find out is you get i said um i was not real keen about um jumping up and down about having children. I just thought in today's culture, and it turns out we weren't able to have children, but it really made me slow down and think about what, again, not a fear-based decision. I've, I, I'm doing that. I'm, let's not make fear-based decisions. And, and uh, Mike helped me unpack, what is the concern? And we ended up, because of the adoption process, the whole thing is slowed down. And you have to unpack, what is your motivation? What, what is likely to happen? And for me, um, the social workers come in and they talk to you about that. What is likely to happen in a year, five years, 10 years. And it's, it's a whole mosaic was unpacked and, and you pick up each piece that was helpful because um, adoption process is harrowing. Uh, the girls are in generally terrible situations and it financially is devastating for the adoptive parents. And we had to make sure that we were ready for the, for the long haul over like a 40 year period. And then you realize you grab hands and as a couple and you say, whether we had the child biologically or adopted, it's a leap of faith that God grants you the child. It's his child. And you're basically the grand stewards of these children. And you are dropped the grace bomb nugget of love exactly at the moment you need it and not a moment before. So this happens all the way through your marriage and it happens all the way through parenting. And it was only upon my mother uh, has just died. So when the story of the rift with Dave and I, my dad had just died. And here we are 30 years later. And you call and say, I'd love to talk to you about Dave. And my mother has just suddenly died. It was in, actually at 94 in very good health. And boom, died. And I went, well, okay, once again, this is the Molinsky full circle. It seems poetic that this all came together at this time. And and then just, I've forgotten what I was saying there, so I'll just pause there. So you, you I, get there and your grace moments is to not make fear-based decision. Get the data you need, but you have to leap of faith and you will get what you need when you need it. And oh, I was, I was at the funeral and I was seeing my California-based niece who lives in LA, um, Santa Monica. She, she was meeting her cousins for the first time. She had come to the East Coast. And she said, so what have you learned about parenting? It's way better than people make it seem. And the parenting actually draws you much closer to God. It's a joy much more than a headache. And you get what you need when you need it. But you have to walk in faith. That's what I learned. And I would tell young Tisa that. But I didn't have a partner, like, you know, somebody to coach me at that time. I really can't thank you enough for what you've shared in that answer to my last question. And just want to note that um, sorry to hear about your mother. And I know it, it must be so much to process from 
from everything you mentioned with your father and now more recently your mother passing suddenly right. i'm can only imagine that there's quite a bit of trauma involved there but uh, kind of to your point I, I like to think and hope that there's also something beautiful to that full yes. circle kind of dynamic that you've touched exactly. on as well seems uh malinsky-esque <laughs> yeah, well, forehead slap yeah yeah well thank you for your sympathy um I'm one of seven. So what's great is I'm one of seven. <laughs> There's a lot of people to um, mourn with and help with the, the workload when your second parent goes. There's just a lot of um, memories and treasures to, to manage. So I live very close to my mother. So I'm sitting in my house and the in, most of the entire thing she owns is now sitting in my house. <laughs> 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 Woo! <laughs> All right. right. Sounds like you got the jackpot on that I one. You have to unpack one when we, we finish this call. <laughs> finish unpacking, girl. Yeah, it's it's uh, always a bigger task than it seems like uh, ahead of time. So uh, I will let you get to that in a bit. But I feel like I'd be remiss not to follow up as well and touch on a lot of what you shared in your answer was um, building on, I think, a phrase you'd use earlier about Dave, uh, modus operandi. Mm -hmm. And yes. I think that you've shared a lot of ways in which you have applied that. And I'd like to think that Dave had a positive impact on you beyond the, the timeline of your relationship at the same time, right. all the credit to you and, and to your husband, Michael, and, and to your mm -hmm. family. It seems like you're close with your siblings as well, just, just rallying right. and making the absolute most you could out of the situation. So you shared so many good examples of, of applying a, a strong, mm -hmm basically based on a method of operation. I'm wondering if we can, um, if it's not too much of a stretch to bring this back to Dave in the sense of how you would describe some of, you know, what you touched on earlier, elaborating on that modus operandi um, and how you observed that in him and, and how that might've played into some of the examples that you just shared about so much of what you've been through uh, since the engagement. Right. So one of his, so one was this pay it forward thing, right? And as I called it, the bona fide, if that's how you say it in Latin, it's good faith. You're moving forward in faith. You're living out your faith. Um, and I said, like, his homily would be brief. It would be be good. Sometimes a good short homily is as effective as a longer one. Um, words, no. Actions, actions, deeds. He was unique in this singular focus. He had right order about his life. So, um, and these are, I'm sharing these to see, so people would think about it and say, um, is that something I could do more of? Maybe I have that and I could do more of, or no, I, I don't have right order with my life. Uh, um, so right order with his life. He was um, a disciplined thinker. He was very bright, his very high IQ. Um, but he had right thinking. It showed up in right taking in the information, processing his rationale. We right. There was never drama or chaos. So there was other thing is when you see this kind of person, you'd say, "Do I have right thinking?" Because your thinking drives your bus. The other one was like right business. He ran his business well. There was no drama there, and he had like right lifestyle. He kept a sleep schedule, and he'd get up, and he would work out, and he would read his three to five newspapers every day, and um, he just had right way about that. So he was not the last minute Larry. There's nothing rushing. His home was like a sanctuary. He was not bringing in and out people. There's no chaos or disorder. His house was kept well. 
Um, he cooked for himself. He just, everything about his life was right order. His personal care, everything about that. Um, he just didn't operate out of fear. That was not his thinking. And uh, it was admirable. So I, if I had to boil it down to a thing, it's a Latin phrase that we would say, unum necessarium. It's the one and only one. And that was Dave. He was focused. And he did this, that one thing was necessary. And he had that one thing and he was focused on that. And then it lives out from his life, right? Thinking, right? Lifestyle habits and it carried out. And it was like a trueness. It, like, it carried a, like a plumb line straight through his life. There was order to his life. So I just, I, you just don't see this in people that like, they just don't have right thinking and there's not right order. And they like, this might part of the life is good, but the rest of their life. So I would say it was like, he valued truth and um, virtue and nobility. And that this was all these themes resonated. So be good and carry it forward. And the one and only one. And what was a treasure for me is when I came into his life, I became his one and only one, but it was consistent with his other um, belief system and his mantra. I wasn't an aberration from that. I was actually amplifying what he was already doing. Is that helpful? Like with the wrapping up Dave in terms of what was that mantra? I feel like helpful would be an understatement. Uh, again, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing what you have. Mm -hmm. And I, I've just got to ask before I let you get to finishing unpacking, as you touched on a few moments ago, is sure. there anything that we haven't gotten to yet? Any other Dave uh, stories or mantras or anything else you have in mind? Well, I have the privilege of having you on for this conversation. <laughs> uh, yes and no, but <laughs> when you were talking, it made me think of like the things that Dave would do to help us. One year, somebody had the genius that the Catholics should run a, a Passover Seder. <laughs> so we would have the experience. And the oven broke at the chapel building, and I was cooking the lamb. I'd never made a lamb, so I had to figure that out. And I had to run across campus with the lamb, because Dave was the only one I knew with an oven. <laughs> And I remember, so that was a funny little thing. <laughs> and then I had to run it back across campus. I probably, that way, I probably took his car and took it back up to campus. I couldn't park it. I remember, I remember running across campus with a not baked, uh, cooked lamb. I thought that was very funny. Very funny. Um, I would leave with um, the piece that Dave would call us to. In, for some of us, it's just having the idea that I am to pay it forward. This is part of my role in life. And Leave it better than the way you found it in just in your family or just keep in concentric circles widening out that you're to actively look for this and that you step in, step in, help, do it. Don't ask for permission, just lean in. So I think that he would want us all just to know that that's part of what we're supposed to be doing and to do it. And he would ask us all um, in gentle ways. And for some of us, I got a little bigger of a shove. <laughs> To do, to do this, that this is our call and we are called to do that. And how can we do that right where we are, even if you never leave your house? So beautifully said, 
Tisa, thank you so much. It's been such an honor having this conversation with you. And I can't thank you enough for not just the time, but the amount of insight you've shared in this conversation. I can't say my appreciation greatly enough. Thank you. Matt, it's been a pleasure to talk about one of my favorite people. And I've loved meeting you and getting to know you, my quasi sort of adopted son. <laughs> yes. I don't know if I'm ready for a mother figure, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm used to parenting younger people. <laughs> yeah, I, that that it might be serious. about a thousand beers down the road. We'll, right, we'll you walk out that and Hopefully, your college bills are behind you. Mine are ahead of me. <laughs> thank yes. you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you once again, Tisa. And I would like to take a quick moment at the end here to thank everybody who's listening to and watching this conversation. To wrap up the month of Malinsky, I'd like to say that I hope this has been helpful in giving you some sort of more proper perspective ahead of the football season to come, already anticipating the ups and downs, both on and off the field, just thinking about ways that we can look to embedding lingo, maximize expected value in life, as mm -hmm. well as embedding. And next week, we will start to turn the, turn the focus back to football a little bit, but let's never take our eye off of uh, what's really important in the grand scheme of things. So thank you once again for tuning into this conversation and I'll see you again next week, right back here on props and hops.